thank you uh, very, very much, Colin. Thank you for reading that uh, for us. And it'd be great if you could uh, keep that passage open in your Bibles as we go through it. This is the next part in our uh, working through 1 Timothy. Um, and uh, we're now on the home straight as we begin the second half of this uh, brilliant letter that I hope has charged us as a church, challenged us as a church, but also inspired us as a church family to enjoy living for Jesus in the ways that we were built to as the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of his truth. This letter is hard, but it is a joy as we remember who we are as a church family and the privilege it is to be called God's family. The privilege it is that we can do these difficult things in this letter because we are God's family. Because, as we saw last week, we do it all in Christ's strength and his perfect godliness. Not ours, as we example his public ministry, rather than focusing on ourselves as being the centre of our own little worlds, but depending on uh, the Lord Jesus. And this focus on godliness comes back again, and this focus on, on, on depending on Jesus for our godliness comes back again this morning with force. As Paul begins to spin out all the themes that he's already set up in the first half of the book, and he begins to draw us as a church and us as leaders very specifically into some very direct lines of application. And he starts this half of the letter where he started the letter proper back in chapter one and draws our attention um, back to Timothy's main charge as a church leader. And that is to deal with false teachers. And we saw them in chapter one. If you remember these men who, verse four of chapter one, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than a stewardship of the gospel. That's what Paul means. The, 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 the stuff that comes from God that is by faith. That's not what they're not looking at. They're just promoting speculations on the Bible reading the Bible in their own way. And, and we're going to finish with these um, false teachers in two weeks' time, in chapter 6, which Robbie Gifford will preach for us, where Paul goes to deeper application still. But here in chapter 4, Paul brings us back to the heart of the issue with false teaching. And that is, very simply, false teachers won't exhibit the traits of godliness displayed by Jesus, as we saw last week. Rather, and our first point of three this morning... False teachers will always end up promoting a false gospel, which will lead people astray. Now, just uh, read uh, verses 1 to 5 with me again, and we see that quite clearly, don't we? Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says, And in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God <coughs> and prayer. Now, can you see what's going on here? Very simply, these false teachers uh, that have sort of infiltrated uh, Timothy's church, they are abstaining from good things, things that God has made good, such as marriage and certain kinds of food. And, and they are preaching that in doing so, they are somehow becoming more godly. They're getting closer to God because of it. Uh, that that was the way to achieve salvation. And in fact, it's worse than that, because these false teachers are not just attempting to achieve godliness through this act of abstinence for themselves, but they are teaching others that this is what godliness looks like. They're, they're in essence saying to the rest of the church that if you give up these things like me, then you'll be saved. That's, that's the path to, to true godliness, to really knowing who God is. We see that in verse 3. Look at the language, look at the verbs. 
in that verse, these false teachers forbid marriage. That's a command verb. They are commanding that others in the church may not marry. It is forbidden if you want to be a part of this church, the true church of God, you can imagine them saying. And, and they require abstinence from foods, meaning if you wanted access to the church, you, you had to prove that you were obedient to their dieting rules. For, for that's what these men require of you if you're going to be a true Christian in our church. And I think these two things are mentioned here, incidentally, because these false teachers were probably going back to what we read in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, about um, their attitude to the Jewish law, Say, saying that if you are really wanting to be a real God-fearing Christian, you must be like the priests in the Old Testament, unmarried, chaste. That's true godliness. And, 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 and likewise, you must eat only kosher foods, specifically, I think, here. D doing that means you're really in God's family. And so you see in all of this, the really important and most dangerous part of this false teaching is it's not as if there are a few foolish idiots sort of swanning around the back of church looking ridiculous and hawkish with their Old Testament piety and their gaunt faces because they haven't eaten anything. And everyone's sort of looking at them, they roll their eyes, they shake their heads and they ignore them. No, that's not what's going on. The, these guys are at the front of church teaching this stuff and everyone is listening keenly nodding their heads and saying, goodness me, that sounds so plausible, it sounds so biblical, it sounds so good. I, I need to do something about my marriage. We shouldn't be together, me and my wife. Or, or I need to give up these foods. God isn't going to love me otherwise. I'm not godly enough, not good enough. And it's for that reason, it's for the reason that these men are leading others astray with this asceticism, that's what we would call that, false piety, the banning of good things from the church family for access to God, that Paul likens this teaching, verse 1, to the teaching of demons themselves, the servants of Satan. And at this point, <coughs> we might put our hands up and say, whoa, Paul, really? Satan? I mean, at best, they're attempting to be godly. At worst, they're perhaps misrepresenting the Old Testament. Is it really that bad? Yes, says Paul, it's actually really that bad. It is that serious because, says Paul, it's leading people away from the truth of God's gospel in Christ that the church should be upholding, chapter 3, verse 14 from last week. The, the truth that says all salvation is found not in works, but in the public Christ who came into the world to save sinners. Any teaching that opposes that, that draws people away from Christ as their godliness, well, that kind of teaching belongs to the domain of the devil. And this teaching is definitively drawing people away from Jesus. Look at verse 1 again, the language that follows. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. Why? Well, because they were devoting themselves to this teaching, to the de deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of these liars who were speaking in front of church, whose consciences were seared, who forbid marriage and abstinence from food. This is no joke, says Paul. These men are doing the work of God's enemy. They are spies, if you like, working against the truth of God's gospel, which preaches grace and trust in a crucified saviour, chapter 3, 14 from last week, who died as a ransom for all, chapter 2, verse 6. And instead it puts all their efforts and work for salvation in themselves, denying the good things that God has instituted and preventing them and perverting them as seeing as bad things. It's the total opposite of what the gospel preaches. It must be teaching that comes from Satan. And this teaching of giving up food and marriage really is the total opposite of what God preaches, isn't it? For what does God say of foods and marriage? 
Well, Paul tells us here, verse 3, these are the things, says Paul, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, those who really know what's going on in the Bible can see that these two things are incredibly good things. For everything, Paul continues, created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. In other words, what does Paul, what does God say of food and marriage amidst his creation? That's the question. He says it is all good. In fact, says Paul, it is holy. All these things are holy and made holy because God spoke his word over it. That's what Paul means in these verses. Now, how does that work? Well, here Paul is reaching again into the one book of the Old Testament that he seems to have open as he writes this letter. Here, Paul takes us back to Genesis again. Genesis 1 and 2. Remember Genesis 1, says Paul, remember the word of God spoken over creation it was created. We looked at that as a church. What was that word? God's word that was spoken over creation was very good. That's what he said. That word of God made creation holy. And then he says, remember the word of God spoken over Adam and Eve as, as he made them one flesh and joined them together in marriage. God's word, if you remember, was that it was not good for man to be alone, meaning it was good for man to be with woman. God made marriage holy by the word of God. That's what Paul is saying. And remember what God said of every single tree in the garden that he gave to Adam and Eve. God's word was that every single tree was good for food, bar one. Every food is holy as it was created by him, proclaimed good by his word and given to his family to enjoy. Can you see? No, these false teachers have no idea what they're talking about. God called all these things good, things to be enjoyed, verse 4, in right ways in thanksgiving, thanking God that these things are good and holy and are to be enjoyed from his hand. That verse 5, um, God declaring things holy by his word, that's really important, for it helps what Paul says in verse 4 about the fact that nothing is to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving. What's going on there? That, that cannot mean that then I can watch what I like, do what I like, eat what I like, sleep with whom I like, whatever, as long as I pray thanks over it, and then suddenly God makes that decision holy. Not at all, obviously not. Why? Well, because God hasn't spoken good over those things. Can you see? That, that, that's the pattern. He, God spoke the word good over marriage, not sleeping around. He, he spoke the word good over food, not gluttony. You see? What God has declared holy, that is the paradigm for our enjoying his good things. And we are meant to receive those good things with thanksgiving. It's why we say grace at mealtimes, quite, quite literally because of this passage. Thanking God for what he has created. It's good stuff that comes from his hand. I'm allowed to enjoy it and I dedicate it to the Lord Jesus who gave it to me. You see, Jesus through Paul here intones the question, why would my family not be allowed to enjoy what I have made good for them? And that question brings us right to the heart of this teaching, for is that not the very lie that the serpent gave to Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Can you see, this teaching of these false teachers is quite literally the teaching of the serpent of Satan in the garden. I think that's why Paul equates it with the same thing. Did God really say, to these guys at the front, did God really call all foods good? Did he really say that? Did God really say marriage was a good thing? Did I'm pretty sure that's not true, if you want to be a keen Christian. If you're married and you've got kids, oh, that's such a cop-out, surely. You're not really serious about Jesus like I am. You don't eat only kosher foods? Well, 
you obviously don't think much of Jesus. You've got two cars. Is, is that really what Christians should be having? You, you sat in the pub all of that Saturday evening with those guys from the neighbourhood. I saw you. You were drinking alcohol with them. I saw you. Really? Is that, is that really the place where God would want you to be seen? If you're really claiming to follow him, did he really say that was okay? You see? We, we recognise this in so many different ways, in, in, in different Christian cultures. In no way is this unique to Ephesus. It's insidious. It makes people feel awful, puts up walls to the gospel that God has never put up. And, it, and it's all cased in such piety and concern and humility. This teaching is definitively the teaching of Satan. Denying God's goodness for those he came to save, making God out to be a liar at the same time. Now, there may be really good reasons for people not to get married. Paul himself made that choice. He felt it was better off for him because of his ministry. That's great. It might be a good reason to not drink alcohol for some people. In many cases, it's important that they don't, and that's wise. It may be, much like myself, not eating certain foods is a good choice that I should be making. Some of you may be looking at me and thinking, actually, Sam, a diet wouldn't go amiss. Now, that's all good stuff. Paul in 1 Corinthians makes his judgment calls on a daily basis. If I'm with a Muslim or a Jewish friend, I almost certainly won't eat pork with them. I can, but it's arrogant and offensive for no good reason. You see? I'll, I'll, I'll willingly impose a diet at that moment. It just makes sense for gospel reasons. But can you see that these guys here are not doing that? It's not out of godly wisdom they're making these calls. They're offering up edicts on living that prevent people from approaching the goodness of Jesus, which separates believers into categories of truly holy and, and uber-godly and very spiritual and the rest who just really aren't up for it, imposing restrictions God never imposes. But more than that, <clears throat> and this is the most harrowing thing about all this, is what we've said before. This teaching is of Satan, not because these teachers in Ephesus under Timothy were summoning demons or playing with Ouija boards or setting up seances in the vestry. That's quite an easy false teaching to spot in that sense. No, this teaching is of Satan because it is so plausible. And that's a great tool of Satan. He is called the great deceiver. He's really canny. He makes sin look good. He makes God look bad. That is exactly what Satan did to Eve in the garden. He deceived her. Paul said that a few weeks ago in chapter 2, if you remember, she was deceived. And the reason it works, the reason false teaching can thrive, the reason we fall for Satan's lies, and the reason that people are being dragged away from the faith because of this teaching is because it's so plausible. It's very believable. It sounds very godly. Teaching is delivered by well-dressed, well-spoken, clean-living, winsome, caring, persuasive men. They're not men with horns on their heads and pitchforks for tails. They're respectable and kind and cautious and welcoming and spiritually minded. They're very hard to spot. They're very easy to fall for. They are quite literally wolves in sheep's clothing. And you can even imagine this teaching framed in spiritual language. Guys, you know, the Spirit has, has placed on my heart this new teaching this morning, which commands the giving up of these material things, relationships and food. It sounds so right, humble even. You can imagine these men saying things like, it's hard, I know it's tough, but God's asked for it. If, if you want a real access to God's inner sanctum, you must give up more. It sounds so plausible. It, it's um, hard to argue against that kind of teaching, isn't it? When someone who looks good and speaks well, invokes the name of the Spirit to impress something they want you to believe. It's very powerful. It's very persuasive. There's no room for a comeback in that sense. You can argue against the Spirit. When the big established churches in the West moved away from the Bible, 
a lot of discussion was prefaced with this very language. And I quote from one particular source that's close to home for us in Scotland, where the reason for changing Jesus' true teaching on social ethics was framed with these very words, and I quote, the Spirit has today given us something new to say. It is expressing the Bible in a new light for a new age. What do you say to that? It sounds so profound. Case in high-level spiritual language by people who are genuinely lovely, put in the mouth of God himself. But it's so wrong. And it's for that reason, I believe, that Paul turns around in verse 1 and says, no, the Spirit hasn't been saying these things. The Spirit, in fact, has expressly said that the opposite is true, that that kind of teaching is the death knell for the church, that this kind of teaching is leading people from a faith, a, a gospel which is not of Jesus, but which is of Satan. That's the kind of teaching that comes from verse 2, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These are awful words. It it doesn't come from good guys, in other words. It doesn't even come from well-meaning guys who are trying their best at getting teaching right, but they're getting lost along the way a little bit. It comes from people who have so lost their way in believing this worldly, demonic-like gospel that their consciences are now seared. They they don't even have their consciences ringing alarm bells anymore, in other words. They're, they're, They're totally blunted. They genuinely believe this stuff. They are, they are holding very sincerely this gospel of profound insincerity, looking great on the outside, abstaining from this and that, being fated as the godliest person in the room, invoking the Spirit himself, but filled with deceit and emptiness, leading people away from the gospel, away from the Lord Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners, not to save the self-righteous and the gaunt and the pious, but the lost the wretched, the lawbreaker, the sinner who comes to Jesus alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in the ransom of Jesus' death alone. And it is that horrible image of a man, a church leader, a teacher, whose conscience has been so blunted that he doesn't even recognize that he's preaching and teaching a gospel that is of the devil, that Paul turns to us, we go into our next point. For Timothy, Sam, says Paul, you have to be so careful that you and your church don't become like this. For says Paul, after this excoriating assessment of these false teachers, turning next to the church as a whole, he says to Timothy, don't fall for that false teaching that leads to false godliness. That looks good, sounds plausible, is godly and holy, but is empty and eternally destructive. Rather, train in true teaching, which must and which always promotes true godliness as lived out by people who are saved and safe in Jesus for eternity. Read with me verses 6 to 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. The difference is stark, isn't it? Have nothing to do with these guys, with their reverent and silly myths. Instead, train yourself hard through the sound word of the gospel that we have already received. Stick to what to know, you know to be true, in other words. To, to recognize and spot and follow and teach only that which encourages true godliness, not asceticism and false piety and dieting that cuts people off from God, but a godliness that is marked by hope in the promised life to come, a hope that is set on the living God who welcomes all people to him. Can you see the difference? False godliness leads to separation and division. 
preventing people from coming to know God. True godliness exemplified by the living God in his gospel leads to a hoping God who removes division, welcomes all people to him. Live that kind of godliness, says Paul to Timothy. The key word here in these last verses is train. The key recipient of this command is Timothy. That means the key recipient of this charge and this warning is me this morning, your minister. And secondly, to us as elders, but also in these verses, you too, Redeemer Church, verse 10, for this end we all toil and strive. If you don't train in true godliness, Timothy, Sam, Will, elders, Redeemer, the implication is your consciences will be seared and you'll back, look back and you won't recognise yourself in a year's time. Now, I know this will amaze most of you here who don't already know this. Indeed, it amazes those of you who do know this, but I'm currently in training for the New Year's Day triathlon. I know, thank you. Um, well, I, I say triathlon, it's, it's one leg of a triathlon. And when I say one leg of a triathlon, it is the first one, which is the one that involves being buoyant in water, where I have to do little more than propel my body uh, and for eight lengths, whereupon I get out, I hand over to Colin Fishbacker and to Ailey Jaffrey, and they're going to finish off the race for me and I can head home early for a kip. I'm only joking, I'll save for the end, maybe. Um, but in order to get my quite remarkably unfit body through the water to the end of, quote-unquote, the race, I realise I'm going to have to train. And I have been, and it's been interesting. Apart from the fact that my back has been thrown out because of, you know, all the exercise, I have moved from dreading New Year's Day to only mildly dreading it. And in fact, I've got to the point where I am feeling the promise of me actually finishing the leg and in a time that isn't excruciatingly embarrassing. Dare I say it, I might even be starting to enjoy it. I know. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> and I think that's very much what's going on here in our passage for training for godliness. It's not that Paul has just moved us from one faith of, by, by works model, sort of the teaching of asceticism, to a new faith by works model, actively striving. No, not at all. These verses don't say true godliness is of value in every way, as achieving it perfectly is the only way you can exist in the present life and get into the life to come. It doesn't say that. It says true godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the life and also for the life to come. Training in true godliness makes us become more like we who already are, in other words, more like what we will be also in the future. That is why last week's verse in chapter 3, 14 to 16, are so important for this part of 1 Timothy. Who are we already? Who are we already saved by um, in this mystery of godliness? Well, we are family in Jesus. Indeed, look at verse 10 of our passage. For this reason we toil and strive for true godliness, not so that we may achieve the pass mark, which then grants us some kind of hope in the living God who suddenly finds us good enough, but because we have, we already have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially those of us who believe. Us, in other words, believers, Christians, those of us here in Redeemer this morning. In other words, God saves we are already God's household, his pillar and buttress of the truth. We are already his princes and princesses in the realms. So strive to be like that. Be who you are, says Jesus through Paul. We're, we're allowed to strive and train for godliness and become more of who we are in Christ. It's great. Why wouldn't we want to do that? It's the best way around. And it means I don't just endure this life in God's house, much like me having to endure this swim. I enjoy it. 
I, I thrive in it. You thrive in it with me as we become more like the people we are saved to be together, side by side, in family. The joy of me doing the triathlon is that there's loads of you in the church who are training with me, even though you're rude to me. I, I appreciate being encouraged that we're on a WhatsApp group and everything. It's a joy, not a chore, as hard as it is sometimes. I'm not on my own. I'm part of a team. We're working together for this. We're working with Edna as she becomes a, a part of this church family, training in godliness with us as we train with her. That's why we say membership promises as a church, because they're things that we as saved people want to be doing and getting better at as, as we become more like the Lord Jesus. And because of that, most importantly, that means we are training for a, in true godliness for a real purpose. And that's where Paul links spiritual training to that sort of bodily triathlon training idea. He says here in verse 8 that actually bodily training, dieting, exercise, working hard, abstaining from foods and drink perhaps, well, that has some value genuinely. It's really good to do those things. It might make you feel better. You'll enjoy life a little bit more. Great, go for it. Uh, next week, Paul is going to give Timothy some medical advice involving alcohol. <laughs> Look after your body materially. That's a good thing. But training in true godliness, well, that is so much better. Because there is a better purpose to it. Because, verse 8, it not only makes a difference to your life now, to your enjoyment of your walk with the Lord, your being able to withstand struggle and pressure and opposition, but it reminds you also of the hope you have in the future life and the life that you will live perfectly. It is so much more value than bodily training. This training has eternal value. You see, the Christian life is not a dead life, just hanging around waiting for Jesus to return. I, I can begin to actually start living the perfect godly life that I will experience in the future now. I won't do that perfectly at all. I can't. I'm a sinner. I, I'm human. But as a family member of God, that is what I've been saved to. It is incredible that it is possible for me to begin to experience, bit by bit, day by day, that redeemed life now. I can start putting sin to death now, in other words. That's what it means. I can start saying no to temptation now. Seeing the progress that will ultimately end in perfection started now, as slow and as hard as it may be. It's an incredible thought. Isn't that an incredible privilege? Why wouldn't we want to start training this way in true godliness, living for that future now? It's great. For those of you who are not Christians here this morning, that is the gospel. Not asceticism, not giving up things, not, not piety or, or dieting or perfect rule-keeping. It is simply trusting in the perfect Lord Jesus, God's perfect son, that he did everything for rotten you and me to get us right into relationship with holy him forever. He even died for you so that you can live forever. If you just come to Jesus in repentance and faith, saying sorry for your sin, following him, that is it. That's the true gospel. And it's deeply wonderful. He alone gets us into eternity, not our striving. But wonderfully, not only does Jesus save me, but he then allows me to live like him. That is the life he has saved us to. That he, that's what he wants to save you into this morning as he becomes the example that we now live and follow. And so as we train ourselves for true godliness as a church, with Jesus as the means by which we train, the example by which we follow, what well, are the questions that we should be asking? Well, first, the main question is, is this action that I'm confronted with something that Jesus would do? Is this decision a decision that Jesus would make? Is this something that Jesus has taught on? Is this something that Jesus would be happy with? And if there are things Jesus hasn't explicitly spoken on, and there are many things Jesus hasn't explicitly spoken on, well, what does the wisdom of the whole Bible say to me in this area? 
What do my godly friends think? And am I praying about all these areas, bringing them before the Lord and allowing my heart to be genuinely changed by the Spirit to match his desires, which increases my wisdom and discernment and helps me to say no to the things I really need to say no to and yes to the things I can? And where do we find all those answers to all those questions? Well, it's the Bible. It's why I hope we're obsessed with the Bible here at Redeemer. We, we, we cannot train in true Jesus-centered godliness if we're not in the Bible the whole time because Jesus' word is where all these answers are. That means, verse 6, we follow the sound doctrine that God is here in the first place. Stick with that. Don't go anywhere else, says Paul. The sound doctrine of the Bible, the words of Jesus, they are what you train in, nothing else. And that brings us to another set of questions we need to be asking as our church family here as Christians. As we train ourselves for true godliness, which spurs us on to future glory, like a swimmer trained for triathlon, what do I need to give up? Not in the way that the false teachers were saying, not the good things, but the bad things. What antichrist things do I need to give up? What do I need to say no to in my life that God has not spoken good over? What behaviours, desires, habits, traits, besetting sins, relationships do I need to give up as I train to be more like Jesus? And, and we all know what they are as we read this passage this morning. What things do we need to stop watching, stop reading, stop listening to, stop doing that have no place in eternity? What hopes and dreams do I need to change to match the hopes and dreams of Jesus? What do I need to change to view others in the church family and in the world the way Jesus views them? What do I need to cut off and sever and put to death? The things that we must remove if we are not to have our consciences dulled and seared over time. And are we truly willing to do that? For that is training in true godliness. Saying no to those things that which God has not called good. Saying no to those things that God hates because we love God so much for all the things that we've just looked at that he's done for us in Christ on the cross that we are increasingly people who only ever want to say no to things that God hates. That's what being in a relationship looks like. And all our relationships need work in this area from our marriages to our friendships to the way that we parent. And it's going to be a challenge as we train. All training is tough, but it's so much easier when it's done for someone we love. And we don't do it alone. We're part of a team. Mainly the team of Jesus himself working in us to bring us to glory through his perfect, true godliness and his wonderful training through his wonderful word. And that brings us very quickly to our last point this morning, which for me is the hardest to preach on the whole of the book of 1 Timothy. 4 verses 11 to 16. Where is this training for godliness meant to be led and exampled and promoted and taught in the church? Me. Timothy, the elders. 4.3, training in true godliness must be exampled, taught, promoted, and lived out in the lives and doctrine of the leaders of God's household. Read these last verses with me. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given by you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in these things, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, and persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Whose job is it to live this life of constant training for godliness in this church family? to set an example for everyone in the church, to show visible progress in all these areas of life, to be teaching and speaking the words that truly train us for godliness. It is me. 
ultimately it is me. And that is really hard. Especially as I stand in front of you and know all the things that I've got wrong just over the past week, not, not, not least the past four years. It's, it's Will, secondly, it's the elders, thirdly, it's the deacons after that, the growth group leaders as well after that, but ultimately it is Timothy, the minister, me. You command and teach these things, Timothy, says Paul. You train the church in the sound gospel you have received. You set an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity, Sam. Show off these things to your church. Not in false humility and piety like the false teachers, but in gritty, earthy reality. Live among them. Show how you act and react in different situations. By being truly humble in the way Christ was humble, practice these things, verse 15. Immerse yourself in them. Swim in them. So that all publicly may see your progress. Now that last sentence is important. Paul does not say so that all may see Jesus perfectly displayed in me or in the elders. That's not going to happen. I am not Jesus, neither is Will, neither are the elders. Expecting us to be will hugely damage you as you'll be sorely disappointed. Because we are sinful people and we have to train in godliness as much as all of you. What you should see is progress. We are all works in progress. We are all at different stages of training, us as elders included. But I hope and pray that what you see in us as elders, me as your minister, is progress. And forgive me for the things that I seem to not be making progress on. I need to do better. Where you can look at me and say, oh, he has moved on in that area over time. Or he made a total hash of that decision three years ago. That was genuinely hard to deal with. But he hasn't done it again with this situation, I don't think. It has been marked by repentance and learning. It should be that you see the hard edges knocked off me and smoothed over time as you ultimately see a minister and an eldership that is desperately dependent on the Lord Jesus for everything and who is training hard. And that dependence is necessary for I, Timothy, the elders, are warned to keep watch of ourselves more than anyone. Keep a watch of yourself, Sam, for these besetting sins that you do fall into and exhibit. They need to be put to death. Watch yourself, your own conduct, your purity. Bring in others around you who keep you accountable. Be, be honest and real with other men as to how things are going. Keep a close watch on yourself and change the things that need to change. Because, verse 16, not only will it help you, says Jesus through Paul, to me, but it would help your church. My godliness will be of benefit to you all sitting here this morning. That's what Jesus is saying, because my failure is cataclysmic for the church family. As Murray McShane brilliantly says in summary to this very passage, what my congregation needs most is my personal holiness. And that is so true and that is very scary. And yet it's said here in front of you in black and white in the words of Jesus, am I doing that? Am I leading the example of training of this church in true godliness in my life and work? There are areas where I won't be and I need to get better and depend on the Lord Jesus Christ. But am I a willing servant of Christ enough to make that progress in my life such that you receive the benefit? The benefit of teaching that isn't truncated or misapplied because of my personal sin but is held out honestly and humbly and full as we all come to God for help and dependence in his godliness. And as we draw to a close, that dependence should be shown to you, church family, ultimately through my, through our as elders, handling of the Bible, of Jesus' words, its priority given in church life. Look at what Timothy is charged to focus on, verses 13 to 14. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
For as we've seen, how on earth are we going to be able to be trained in true godliness if we don't have that? Only if we are only teaching and preaching Jesus' word in the entirety of the scriptures are we going to be able to be trained in godliness. Am I doing that? Week in, week out. That is a question you must ask of your minister. Are Sunday mornings and prayer meetings and growth group studies deeply orientated around scripture? Are we asking the right questions of scripture? Do we approach scripture in the right way? And if we are doing that as a church, are we praying that that will be the same in three, five, four, six, ten, fifty, hundred years' time at Redeemer? Because there is no guarantee that we will be unless we train ourselves to continue to be. And on top of this devotion to the word, Timothy, conversely, verse 14, told not to give up his gift of teaching. Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. That, that simply means don't neglect the ministry gifts that you have, Timothy. Publicly acknowledge through the speech and the reports about you that the elders collated, that convinced them that you were right for the job, acknowledged by the laying of hands. It's because of this verse that we, we ordain our elders by the laying on of hands. It's a sign that we recognize the ministry gifts that the Spirit has placed on them. Don't neglect that gift says Paul to Timothy, to me. That is my charge. I have to keep teaching, in other words. I have to keep working. I have to keep training in all the areas that God wants me to work at. Not to rest on my laurels or become lazy and ineffective. Not to get cynical and myopic, but to keep going as hard as I can as I lead the church. Not in perfection, not in sparkling holiness, but under the Lord Jesus who ultimately leads this church depending on his perfect godliness, giving up things daily over which God has not called good. Always in godly progress, in earthly, real, repentant training in true godliness, in the real everyday, day in, day out battle with sin and the never-ending giving up walk with the Lord Jesus. Standing always on the word of God in the church family and doing nothing else. My prayer is that I do all these things and I continue to do all these things, even if I am really not doing some of them at the moment. Our prayer as elders is that we will do all these things. And your prayer should be that I and the elders would do all these things. Please pray for us. Pray for me. I need it. You know that. As I pray for you and your joyful training in true godliness under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as we remember now, as we approach the Lord's table for communion, died for our sinful bodies with the giving of his perfect body, such that we might be saved through grace in repentance and faith and given the most incredible of second chances to live a life of training to be more like Jesus and more like what we will perfectly be in the life to come. Let me pray together as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much for your goodness to us through your word this morning. Father, thank you for the way that we have been really charged to do this book uh, that Paul wrote to Timothy. Lord, help us to be people who take these words and put them to heart. Please, Heavenly Father, may we not leave here unchanged or unchallenged by the word. Lord, may it be that we who know you would be willing to, to train in true godliness, to never giving up saying no to that which you have not called good, and to say yes to those things that you have called good, and which for the good of your family. Father, help us to be people who, as we saw last week, are, are willing to be the household of God, are willing to be more like Jesus, are willing to share the gospel, to be a pillar and buttress of God's truth in the world as we hold out the gospel to everyone in this community and beyond who needs to hear it. 
Father God, help us to be a church that is not marked by perfection or piety or false godliness, but marked by a reality, an, an, an earthiness, a, a struggling and a battle with sin, a real honesty as to how wretched we are and, and, how, and how much we want to do better because we are saved into Christ's family, because we want to be like Jesus, because we love Jesus so much that we would only ever want to do the things that he wants us to do. And that our hearts and our spirits, our, our, our wisdom, our desires are changed and crafted to be more like his. Ultimately, Father, may we be people who are spurring each other on to that final day where we will finally be perfect. We were able to put all of this to death properly in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy reigning and ruling with him for eternity. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus for his sake and for his glory. Amen.